Good morning. It's Monday, March 13th, 2017, and this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. Today on the show, our interview with fantasy writer Terry Brooks. Terry Brooks is the New York Times bestselling author of the Shannara, Landover, and Word Void series. A former attorney, he published The Sword of Shannara in 1977, the book spending 16 weeks as a bestseller. He has since written 36 novels. Recently, The Elfstones of Shannara was made into a television series on MTV. His novels Running with the Demon and A Night of the Word were selected by the Rocky Mountain News as two of the best science fiction fantasy novels of the 20th century. And the Shannara Trilogy made NPR's top 100 fantasy and science fiction books. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So our first question is, how do you see the role of women changing in fantasy uh, and or how has the role of women in fantasy changed over time? Well, for me personally, <laughs> rather drastically, um, I, uh, when I wrote Sword, um, it had no major female characters. It only had one female character. And uh, boy, did I hear about that uh, <laughs> from all quarters. And I live in a matriarchy, by the way. So I should point out, besides my grandson and, and my son and myself, that's about all there is. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I wrote Elfstones, uh, there was going to be major female characters for sure. Um, but I think it's a sign of uh, the shift in times. Uh, when I started in the 70s, um, the readership was strongly male and young, um, and that has obviously changed dramatically. In fact, the authors for, uh, were strongly male as well. There were a few major female authors, like Anne McCaffrey and one or, one or two others, but <clears throat> mostly they were male. And, of course, now I think we have perhaps more female writers uh, than we do, and we certainly have an, at least I do, have an audience that's evenly split pretty well, as well as being of all ages. And fantasy has kind of blossomed into this rather all big, this all encompassing big tent experience um, that has drawn readers from all, all, uh, all, all possible quadrants. Um, you know, I think the role of women, uh, you know, fantasy, good fantasy I was taught early on by my first editor should reflect the world at large, um, and I think it does. Uh, in the books that I love and, and the books that have stayed popular, uh, it does reflect what's happening in the world, uh, or at least the world at that time that it's written, and, and the role of women has just changed dramatically. I, I went to men's colleges. If you can believe it, that's how old I am. <laughs> um, and I went to a male law school that had never seen a black student. Um, and all that's changed at, in my alma maters in both, ca- in both cases. Uh, and I just think that uh, we've achieved a, a, a more of an equality, a more of a representational audience than uh, we did uh, when I started out. And, and, of course, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was due to a lack of interest or just that it's now more inclusive? No, I, I think it was uh, would always would have been inclusive, but there are social pressures on uh, at that time. Uh, you know, girls, so there were certain expectations for women and girls that uh, that aren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we we've gotten past the stay-at-home mom. Uh, you don't go out and have another job. Uh, you know, unless you really have to, because it's just not appropriate. And the male is supposed to be the supporter of the family. Um, you know, all that's gone gone, gone by the way. 
girls read Nancy Drew, boys read Hardy Boys. Well, you know, uh, that's all gone away, too, and, and we no longer expect that that's the case. And, and really, uh, science fiction fantasy was at the forefront of that yeah. because we had writers and readers in the early 80s uh, at a very early t- time period that were strongly attached to the material and were kind of on the cutting edge of what was going on with books and reading. So, you know, I'm, I kind of think that's... That's one of the reasons I'm so fond of this particular genre. Yeah, um, it seems to be ahead of Hollywood, for sure. I'm thinking of, like, Neil Stevenson's Diamond Age and other books. Oh, where... absolutely. I don't think Hollywood's ahead of anything. Right. <laughs> I really don't. Yeah. I mean, mostly what they do is they see something happening, like Harry Potter, and they get all excited and they say, well, let's make that. Yeah. You know, and then they want to make four dozen more Harry Potter <laughs> or... You know, it's like what's happened with the proliferation of young adult fiction by young women, yeah. which has been massive. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, the movies have decided, hey, let's buy some books from these people. I bet we can do well with them. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, how much fantasy did you ever see out there? You yeah. know, really, before Harry Potter, there was nothing. Yeah. Just nothing. And, and uh, the vast wasteland. And now, you can't, you know, you can't turn the corner of a newspaper without reading about the latest fantasy movie. Yep, exactly. Um, question for you. So back to your earlier comment on um, having one female character when you first um, wrote the book. Can I ask who that was? Oh, uh, her name was, uh, what was her name? I can't think of her name. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't even any was, of the current uh, characters. She was a, she was a, a, a subsidiary character uh, who was a kind of semi-love uh, interest for Morgan Lee. But um, she didn't have any, really had any impact on the way the story went. Um, and uh, I don't know why that is. I mean, I guess because I was uh, enamored by Lord of the Rings and I was all caught up in the quest of the, of the uh, you know, young party with no ma- females actually involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's hard to look back and, and, and know the answer to that because it probably wasn't even a conscious decision. It was one of those, more like an oversight. And then afterwards, uh, when it's pointed out to you, you say, well, that's darn what I do that for. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, or that was sure a poor decision on my part. Uh, so, you know, th- things you wish you would have done over. But, you know, it, I think it's been a good thing because it's made me extremely conscious of the fact that I can write female characters um, almost better than I can write male characters. And it's probably because of that matriarchy thing I mentioned earlier. Um, and also because I like women, Maybe I like them more than I like men, uh, in terms of companions and people to talk to, and they're smart and they're readers, you know, so uh, I get caught up in that sometimes, I think, and I feel like those characters are, are uh, multi, uh, very multidimensional. Okay, um, well, one question I had for you, um, actually, that stopped me right away was, I'm a big fan of Christopher Pliny's Inheritance series, um, and I was in there all have magic, and it's something I've noticed a lot. Um, reading fantasy, um, but this is actually the first book I've read with the inclusion of elves without magic. So in Elf Zones of Shinar, we see the elves after they've lost their magic, and mm-hmm. the magic that we do witness um, or read about is limited to Alanon and Will. So I guess my question is, what made you decide to do that? What made me do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, less is more. Um, with magic, uh, one of the things you don't want to do is overplay it. Um, I think books that do that sort of thing end up reading like comic books. Mm. Um, and uh, everybody having superpowers means nobody has superpowers and nobody cares. 
Um, so for me, uh, magic needs to have a purpose and a place in the story, and you can't solve all your problems that way because that's not real life. You know, real life doesn't work like that. It isn't something magical that solves all of our problems. Usually it's the nature of the character and, and fighting your way through difficult uh, situations using the tools you have and the skills you have that are innate to, to your genetic makeup. Uh, and whatever experience you've gleaned along the way. So I've always always thought you should downplay the magic part of things and use it sparingly in the storylines. Uh, I guess that's one of my mandates for writing. <laughs> so one thing that we noticed, too, um, was that we've talked about this idea before um, when we've discussed literature between um, the three of us, and there's this idea of all magic comes with a price. And it's mm. actually one of my favorite TV shows is Once Upon a Time on ABC. And so one of the main characters, Rumpelstiltskin, he says this a lot throughout the series. Um, and something, too, we notice as being a big theme in fantasy or these types of books um, and TV shows. And we're just curious to see what you think your take is on that. Um, and why do you think this is such a common theme for this genre? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I would be guessing at best. Uh, I think that... Uh, in literature, you have always seen uh, that things that happen uh, come at a price. Um, I'm a big, uh, advoca- a big advocate, big fan of William Faulkner, and uh, he taught me a lot about the way that people destroy themselves through secrets and through a failure to act in a responsible way. Um, and, and certainly in fantasy, Lord of the Rings was all about uh, personal responsibility and uh, about... Uh, uh, the ways in which you conducted yourself and the fact that if you if you exercise things in a wrong way, there was a price to be paid. Um, and we know that from all the characters uh, and how they ended up in Lord of the Rings. There was always a price exacted for what they had to do. They did it anyway because that's kind of what you do when, when you're in a, a situation where uh, there's so much at stake. But... Uh, why this has proliferated, it's like anything else. I guess it's, it's caught on. Uh, obviously, people have realized that this is a theme that resonates. Uh, and um, I think that uh, it's, the same, it's, it's the same thing that resonates because of uh, the, an assumption of uh, personal responsibility for situations that are not of your making. You know, uh, everybody understands that because we're always being, as individuals, uh, being caught up in situations that are difficult and are exacting and maybe uh, damaging to us. And we didn't ask for this to happen. It happened to us, you know, and now you have to deal with it. If you deal with it in the right way, you can come out on the right side. If you don't, you get, you get submerged. It's funny that you mentioned uh, Faulkner because I, I just got done teaching As I Lay Dying, which mm-hmm. all of those folks have secrets that are their kind of undoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me, like, right now I'm just kind of thinking of of Alanon as a character, mm-hmm. he's always like guarding, seems to be guarding some secret. Um, and you have chapters where he sort of contemplates the morality of telling Shay or Will mm-hmm. something, or you know, yeah, something mm-hmm. about what their future should be or what it's going to be, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems that a lot of your books are centered on that idea of moral responsibility. Mm. Well, I think it's indigenous to who we are Mm -hmm. uh, as a culture, and uh, 
uh, as a society. Um, uh, why, why am I suddenly flashing on the current presidential election? <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, it just flashed into my mind uh, about moral responsibility and proper behavior. At any rate, um, I just feel like with uh, Alan on, he is, the Druids are the givers of knowledge. They're the keepers of knowledge in, the, in a way that nobody else is. They always see things that uh, nobody else does, and then they have to make the very difficult decision of how much to reveal at any given point. Uh-huh. And sometimes they hold back information that might have resulted in sparing somebody, maybe even saving a life, but they feel that if they do it, it's going to have a greater negative consequence. Um, and, uh, again, I think this reflects what we know to be true about this world, uh, that those kinds of decisions are made. And, and certainly no one is saying they're made in the right way either. They're just made because they have to be made in some way, fashion. And how much we reveal about ourselves in person, our personal lives, how much our governments reveal, is all about, um, you know, trying to decide what's best for other people. And that's, that's a presumptuous and huge kind of responsibility uh, to undertake. But people have to do it all the time. Governments have to do it all the time. And uh, so I write about it. So the dynamic between magic and science in the Shannara series is really interesting. Uh, I read a previous interview that you did with Den of Geek where you mentioned that magic and science are two sides of the same coin. Do you think that, uh, like magic in the Shannara series, that there is a cost associated with science in our own world? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you see it all the time. Uh, we know that any form of science you talk about uh, in, in the, that has a power to it, uh, nuclear, electric, uh, the use of, of, of uh, fossil fuels, uh, is there a consequence there? Well, I don't think anybody, except the total deniers, uh, would say that that's true. We're, look what we're dealing with right now with the environment. Uh, the consequences uh, are that the environment's changing. Is this the result of the way that this world has evolved? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Um, and whether it was a conscious thing or an unconscious thing, we have to live with those results. Um, and will we be able to, to change this in any way, or will Mother Nature adjust to change it for us? Um, I keep thinking about all these earthquakes and tsunamis that we're having right now uh, and uh, how that has changed things for us. And much of of what um, has happened uh, is the result of our evolution through science. Um, And and I can't, you know, this whole Shannara cycle is about the the juxtaposition of science to magic. And um, I'm very aware of this because I'm writing the end of the series right now. Mm. Uh, and in that, we're dealing directly with the question of how much is science uh, going to impact magic now that it's starting to reassert itself. You know, we had our, our, we had our science period destroyed the old world, and we had our magic period. It's managed to bring us along for three to three, 4,000 years. But now science is starting to reemerge in a different form but still a science. And so now, you know, what, what's going to be the result of a clash between these two? And uh, how is that going to impact the, the world of the four lands? Makes me think of uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. Have you read that? No. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, Ursula Gwynn has touched on this sort of thing, too, on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. So um, writers have been writing about it for a long time. It's yeah. not 
it's not new. I, 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 my editor, my old editor, Lester Del Rey, once told me uh, when I wrote a, a misguided uh, story of the universe, uh, let's just say, mm-hmm. um, and he said, oh, this is just lovely. He says, however, he says, uh, there's no personal connection to any of this, and you have to stop trying to reinvent the wheel. There are no new ideas. Stop thinking there are new ideas. Everybody has had all those ideas before. What there is is a new way of presenting them. There's a new voice. But when you try to get clever with your ideas and that becomes the focus of the story, you're going to lose your readers. Yeah, the same thing with the characters. You know, it's, they can't just be pawns. Even the bad guys, you have to care about them one way or another. No, I mean... Otherwise, people would give up writing because, yeah. you know, it's all been done and, and mm-hmm. said, and, and I, a lot of young writers I talk to worry about that. They said, I, I'm sounding too much like this. I'm sounding too much like that. My story is familiar. I said, well, even if your story is familiar, this isn't a bad thing. It just means you have to find a way to present it that makes it fresh and interesting. And uh, that's where the real challenge lies. And, uh, and I, I talk a lot about getting off of the idea that, you have to, you know, have a character nobody's ever seen before. It's not that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, it's so and it's so common with with young writers. Uh, I have lots of students who say that they intentionally don't read all the, you know, great vampire books, Bram Stoker, <laughs> because you know they they don't want to be influenced by that. And I say, well, you you want to be, <laughs> you want to know the the lore, you know. Yeah, you know, you really should. Um, I was, uh, when I was in um, middle grade, uh, 7th and 8th grade, um, in would have been 58, 59, no, 57, 58, something like that. Um, I read everything in science fiction in two years. <laughs> everything. You could do that in those days. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> there wasn't that much, yeah. you know. Not like now if you tried to do that. It'd take you, you know, years if, if you even got through. Yeah. But... Reading all that gives you that background that you really need to understand how to do things. Yeah. That's what my teaching tool is, reading what other writers do. Um, and I think, and plus, uh, well, most of the writers I know say if you're not reading 75% of the time, uh, you can't be a writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It. Uh, and there's some truth in the fact that you, you need to be uh, you know, wedded to books in a way that it trans- just, transcends just the writing part and takes you into the reading part as well. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a sort of dialogue, right? I mean, you're yes. joining a conversation. Yeah, because you're going to read a lot of stuff you're not going to agree with or, not, or you're not going to like or you're not going to be wedded to in any way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'd all be writing Harry Potter and making right. millions of dollars. <laughs> but that doesn't, isn't the way it works. And, uh, you know, you can admire something without necessarily feeling that you have to write that particular story. And you can dislike things without having to think that somehow you have to write something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it gives you a sort of uh, shorthand, too, you know, so if you have familiar ideas, you can call upon the ideas and the, def- the feelings and the discussions of what has come previously and bring it into a new conversation. Yeah, I think that that's true, and I think that the, sometimes writers forget that, you know, writing is intuitive and instinctive um, to a large extent, and when you're sitting down and writing, you're not thinking about whether you're crafting a sentence that matches somebody else's sentence. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not, if you're working that way, God help you. Uh, what you're supposed to be doing is you're, pu- you're putting it down as the thoughts go. You know, you'll, you'll edit it out later, but I, I think you need that free-flowing thinking. And having all that information from the background sometimes uh, helps you to, you know, feel comfortable with the process. Mm-hmm. Should, anyway. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Al-Anon again. Um, speaking of 
uh, feeling familiar. He reminds me a lot of Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting that he is such an all-knowing, all-powerful figure in Sword and Elfstones, uh, you know, like dueling one-on-one with the Dagnamore. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Wish Song, he is definitely aging. He's older, he's tired, and we start to see the effects of his magic usage. Mm-hmm. Um, is the loss of his power due to the price of using magic, or is it connected to the age of magic ending? No, it's not connected to the age of magic ending, because there are, it's just his age is ending. Um, mm. He's gotten older, um, and uh, as I have discovered, when you get older, uh, you tend to lose uh, all kinds of things, <laughs> starting with energy and focus, and uh, we could go on. But So uh, I saw that in him, and that's the way that trilogy was intended to play out. He was always intended to die in that book. Uh, this was the, this was the end, and then there was going to be a period of time where there would be no druids until somebody else came back and brought Perinor back into the world. So, uh, absolutely, the magic has worn him down through the use of it, and I see him in that way. Um, and that's certainly Gandalfian, uh, as we saw. Uh, the difference was that uh, I think... Um, if you forget the movie for a minute <laughs> <laughs> and just remember the book, Gandalf was not real proactive in the use of magic. He had a couple high, high points in there where he was involved. But Al-Anon uh, is really a much stronger, more aggressive kind of individual. Um, and uh, he was never intended to be anything but that uh, in, in Sword or in Elfstones, uh, strong enough. Uh, he's beaten down by what he's had to go through uh, to shepherd things along the route that he thinks they need to go. But uh, physically speaking, he's he's a pretty strong character, and he's he's more of a warrior than he is um, a sorcerer. So as far as the protagonists go, at least for the Shannara series, um, Sword, Elfstones, and Wishsong, we notice that a lot of the protagonists are... Um, flawed as characters, like, you know, they're not perfect, um, but they're also largely reluctant to accept what is their quote-unquote destiny. Um, What role do you think reluctance plays in destiny, and is it necessary for them to be reluctant in order to be successful? Well, I like flawed characters because I think that's what draws you to the character, is the fact that they're, what their flaw is and and how they struggle to overcome it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that uh, everybody I've met uh, in this world or read about uh, suffers from flaws. If you find anybody who's not like that, please let me know. Uh, but I think that's who I identify with. And so the, having that, that flaw uh, or those central flaws play into how they deal with what they have to do. Yes, these characters are given a destiny. It's not always clear what it is. It's not always clear to them that they even want to be involved in this destiny nonsense. Uh, I mean, who in their right mind thinks it's a great idea to go off and, uh, you know, find a sword and then confront this monstrous thing that nobody's ever been able to overcome uh, without even knowing how the, what the sword's supposed to do? Uh, you know, it takes a certain amount of, uh, of uh, trust and faith uh, but I think that um, I think that the flaws certainly play into their ability to perform um, in, in every case because those flaws will uh, assert themselves at some point, um, and uh, they will be an impediment. Uh, and at some point, you have to overcome those flaws, and you have to find a way to get past them. 
and sometimes sometimes they're even physical. Sometimes, mostly they're emotional. I think mostly I think about people with emotional hang-ups of one kind or another, or difficulties in dealing with certain things. But like John Ross in uh, Running with the Demon, uh, he's crippled for his failure to act when he should have, yeah. uh, and so he's he's limp. He limps through the whole time. He has no strong physical ability to move quickly, so he's you know he has to everything he has to do in order to save Nest Freemark, he has to do with this handicap. And I think that makes the stories uh, that we read about more interesting to us than the ones where everybody is sort of perfect. To me, uh, that's the only thing that saves comics, is, is if, if, you know, comics are comics, for crying out loud. They're fun, but they're, they're not real. You know, nobody has all these powers. But somebody like Spider-Man, who's suffering from all these emotional hang-ups, um, and the fact that, uh, you know, he can't even get a date uh, half the time is, uh, plays into the interesting part about his character, which otherwise might not be there. Um, and in books, it's, I think it's, all, it's central to the success of, of the stories that I love. It makes me think of the end of Sword. You know, you think the sword is going to be a sword, mm-hmm. and, you know, the end is Shay being able to accept his flaws, right. and his enemy not, you know. Right, exactly. And I, I, I thought that was poetic in a way, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it worked for what the story was supposed to be. Um, I didn't want to get to the end of the story and uh, have it be a sword fight mm-hmm. <laughs> between the warlock yep. lord and Shea because that just felt, oh, my God. You know, and I, and I'm, I spent some time talking to um, the writers with Shannara Chronicles about this very thing, uh, and also with a, a book called Magic Kingdom, which is over at mm-hmm. Warner Brothers, that don't end the story with a fight, mm-hmm. a physical battle between the main character and, uh, and whoever the, the antagonist is. I said, oh my God, you know, let's, get, let's stay clever here. Let's stay smart. Uh, and find different ways to deal with this. And no, they didn't entirely listen to me. <laughs> yep. well, but even so, um, I kind of think that's it. If you're dealing with, uh, you know, I mean, my characters in the early books, particularly, they're they're essentially boys. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. they're upper teens, um, and so they don't have any real life experience, uh, not yet. And they're not, you know, at their their physical peak yet. And they're, in, in some instances, they aren't even particularly physical. So um, I, I don't think that needs to be the solution for everything, because I, I think we know from the way the world works that that's not always the way that things are resolved. Yeah, and it's really dealt with nicely in, in S.W.O.R.D., because I I remember, I don't know which part it is, but Shay actually you know, thinks about this, that he's not going to be very good with a sword kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not, he's not a, a warrior. He's not. He doesn't have that gene. Right. You know, and most of us don't. You know, yeah. uh, and me being, you know, right at the head of the line. I'm not a physical kind of person. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't approach things with the idea that, well, if this doesn't go my way, I'm going to knock his block off. Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I think that's how we see things mostly as human beings. And uh, we try to find a better way to resolve things uh, because we know uh, that the physical approach isn't necessarily going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. my I, I think that's true in uh, Elf Stones and Wish Song as well. I mean, you know, uh, you got the end of Elf Stones and Amberly turns into a tree. You know, there is the giant battle between the four lands and the demons, but it isn't 
this huge physical altercation that is ultimately the saving blow, exactly. I guess. Exactly. And, I, and then in Wish Song, the mm-hmm. same sort of thing, that the child who has the Wish Song, uh, Bryn, who really has the use of powerful magic, you know, she's, she's being subverted. Mm-hmm. And she has to be saved by her brother who only has the appearance of the Wish Song. He can create things that, he can create images, but he can't really do anything. So, you know, that to me was the twist that really worked and why it was, it was important that uh, we, we, we see the resolution happen in that way rather than Bryn somehow bring it about herself. Yeah, it's, right. it's funny. Uh, I, I, read the, I read these back in the 80s, and they, these two read uh, Elfstones for the interview um, at the start of the semester. I just finished Wish, so- Wish Song yesterday. so. <laughs> and I got a Facebook message when Molly got to the end basically saying, Oh, my God, you told me to do a tree. <laughs> well, you know, as a writer, that's exactly what you want. Yeah. Um, my, my, my mandate to myself about books is this, that you will start reading this book and you will not be able to stop. When you get to the end of a chapter... There's something to take you to the next chapter mm-hmm. right now, and you will stay mm-hmm. up all night, and you will you will skip work the next day, you will cut <laughs> classes, but you will finish this book because you can't not finish it. Yeah. And when you get to the end, you'll feel there was a real payoff there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I read so many books where uh, 300 pages, 400 pages are great, and then along about then, the writer thinks, you know, if I just finish this thing, I can get paid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So they rush through the ending, you know. And you think, oh my God, this was the stupidest ending. You know, this was this just doesn't make any sense. You know, I've been cheated, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't I don't want readers to feel like that ever. I I, I guess um, just you know returning to the books, uh, um, sword and elf stones. I just see so much growth in terms of pacing and dealing with the characters uh, between the two. Um, you know, uh, it fe- it felt a little bit like you matured as a writer between those two books. What are you saying here, Dean? <laughs> 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 no, well, you're absolutely right, and I think that uh, you know I took a lot of hits for that first book uh, uh, from all quarters, mm-hmm. and um, I-, I tell people now, I said, look, that was the first thing I ever wrote. Yeah, you know, I wrote a lot of stuff in between, but nothing I ever finished. Yeah. You know, I started things, and, and then I got lost interest and went on. That was the first thing I ever wrote all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the story behind how it got published, if you, if you ever have a chance to t- look at Sometimes the Magic Works, uh, is fairly astonishing. And I won't go into it here because it's too long. But it basically has to do with how lucky I was that the book arrived in the hands of the Del Rey's at Valentine Books, because uh, that's why it was as successful as it, it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, by the time I had gotten through that book, I'd rewritten it about four times. Mm-hmm. And uh, two of those times were with working with Lester. And then I wrote another book, and Lester turned it down. 400 pages into it, he said, no, you can't publish this, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was devastated, yeah. of course, and I couldn't believe he was real. I thought he was, you know, clearly mistaken in some way. But uh, he taught me, because of that book, he made me, he, he said, trash it and start over. And I did. 
and then he made, made me rewrite write the middle 200 pages of that book from scratch, yeah. and then he made me rewrite parts of it twice after that. And I tell everybody, you know, it was the best, the fact that he was able to take that time with me in those days when editors could do that, yeah. and give me the instructions that I needed to understand what it took to be a commercial fiction writer, because I didn't know anything. Yeah. You know, I'd barely taken any, I had taken no writing classes at all. You know, I read constantly, but I knew no writers and knew nobody in the field, and I was working in a vacuum the entire time. So that instructional period from roughly 1974 to uh, 1985 uh, was something that any young writer would give an arm and a leg for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really taught me everything that I needed to know uh, at that time period about why things worked the way they did and how to put a book together um, and I, I, I try very hard, of course, to write every book uh, based on what I've learned in the interim because it's an ongoing education. Um, I'm always learning about how to do things differently, and I hope uh, to become a better writer. So, Yeah, well, it's one of the mystiques that a lot of my students talk to me about. It's like there's this idea that you, a writer has a certain magic, you know, when you sit down and these days in front of a computer screen and suddenly a spirit descends upon you and you can <laughs> write a first draft and, and yeah let me know when that happens yeah i say it's <laughs> not most of these guys who are and women who are writing these books this is what you're reading is you know sweep through number 10 you know of the entire yeah. thing i talked to uh we we had a little we have a little writing conference uh, really a, a reader writer meet meet and greet kind of thing up here one weekend out of the year and one of our guests this year was a writer named Jonathan Evison, who wrote uh, West of Here, and uh, he has uh, uh, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, is coming out as a movie, and uh, a very a very interesting, strange guy. But he said uh, in his discussion, um, he's like uh, Asperger's or something. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is, and he doesn't know what it is either. He says, I just live with it. Uh, but he writes, he just writes for like 10 months, mm-hmm. and then he says... And he says, somewhere in that, 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 after that time period, I suddenly know what it is I'm supposed to do. And then I can write the book in 90 days. But uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's a process to it, and everybody has to learn what the process is that works for them. Um, But it all is going to involve a whole lot of thrashing about and cogitating and throwing away and, you know, uh, spending time to get the thing right. Uh, at least right for them, and uh, there just isn't any path, and it isn't, and God knows the light never shines down on you uh, with any regularity, uh, with, uh, you know, inspiration. It's, you just have to, you just have to keep plugging away, and sometimes you're better than other times. Uh, I'm going to kind of go back to the environment, because that's one of the questions that I had. Um, the importance of the stewardship of the environment and the sense of closeness to the earth are important mm-hmm throughout all the Shinar books. Um, mm-hmm. You seem to connect them to the old races, uh, the elves among them, and you tie them to like the strongest magic mm-hmm. that now seems to be fleeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one of the things that made me question is, um, do you see the past as sort of idealized um, in your work, Some somewhat inspirational, something to draw on? Well, uh, in, in various ways, um, 
you know, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it, mm-hmm. uh, number one. Uh, but also, uh, we tend to not learn from the past uh, as a people. Um, uh, I, I, on, a, on a personal level, again, I think we discover. <laughs> uh, I discovered this when I had children, um, and I had four of them, and it, it was the same with all of them, that I had all this great information. I have this valuable knowledge that I have accumulated over the 50 years of my life or the 40 years of my life, and I want to pass it along, and they don't want to hear it. (laughs) 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 They don't care. They want to learn it on their own. So it's it's sort of like that, and I I kind of feel like we we forget about the past sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Books help us to remember that because they're, they're a chronicle of it, um, I happen to think that fiction is a better source of material than nonfiction in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be, a little bit because the victors <laughs> write the history yeah. and, and uh, frequently rewrite it yeah. uh, to suit their own situation. Um, and uh, but the way we are and the way we think and the way we act with other people is all covered there. Uh, and where we were in World War II or Vietnam or any of the seminal points that happened. Uh, all covered there. I, I I think it's real real important. And I, I in the on the environmental front, you know, I admit I'm a big uh, a big a big advocate member of many organizations that deal with protecting the environment or trying to uh, you know improve the environment. And um, I think it's part of our stewardship of the world we live in, and, and we need to be involved. And so naturally, it works its way into my writing. And, yeah. and the elves are the good guys in that regard, for the most part. Um, but um, and they're trying to set an example for what you need to do, um, and they eschew, even though uh, in the books at least they eschew the idea that you you need to have big palaces and castles and so on. You can you can find ways to live within your your, your environment that are they're more organic in nature and and less destructive. Yeah, and it's funny. Con, con, uh, now science seems to be embracing, or at least certain quarters of science seem to be embracing mm-hmm. that idea, right? And so some of the uh, advances we see are in areas that deal with that, with stewardship of the environment directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, it certainly is true. Um, and there's been uh, enough events happen, uh, enough uh, information accumulated over the past, at least the past dozen years, about climate change and about damage that's being done uh, through one means or another that needs to be rectified if we don't want to poison everything. Um, it goes all, For me, it goes all the way back to S.W.O.R.D. because the world mm-hmm. was destroyed to, to a large extent because we poisoned it. We poisoned it, we ruined it, and then we blew it up. Yeah. It, you know, and I, I just, uh, I, I see evidence of it, uh, I'm sure like everybody else does, every time I turn around. Uh, in some part of the world, uh, you can see it happening. In Chronicles, the it's largely visual, which is really kind of interesting. You know, mm-hmm. that, that that discussion doesn't necessarily take place in the same way that do, it does in the text, but we get to see mm-hmm. the beautiful destruction in some in some cases, right? Those those vistas that we look at there. I think that uh, one of the good things that MTV did uh, was that they brought full into that into this that second book something that I left for much later in the series mm-hmm. which was um, the, uh, the the old presence in this world 
Um, and uh, you see more of it in the latter books than you do in, you know, you just see bits and pieces of it in those first three. But uh, MTV thought, it, uh, the people there said right off the bat, we want this to be clearly our world in the future, and it's been destroyed, and we've destroyed it, and now we're living with the consequences of this. And I think I expect to see more of that surface in upcoming seasons, too. So um, you talked a bit about your family earlier, which I think is interesting because it comes to my, my next question here. Um, so one aspect of the book that was not explored um, much in the TV series or what I thought um, wasn't touched upon that much was the relationship between um, Eventine and Ander. So mm-hmm. in the book, um, like at the beginning, they almost had this hard time communicating, and a few of the scenes were actually awkward to read, at least um, for me they were. Um, and I was just wondering if you thought that this had to with the sibling rivalry or if it was more um of the fam- like the family relationship like is this saying that we all have issues with our family or i mean what were you trying to explain here i guess was my question in the book oh you mean in the book yeah like um so so aaron and ander they kind of have this rivalry um between brothers and right. um who's going to take the crown essentially um or have right. the power after their father passes away. Um, do you think that's what led to this um, awkward relationship at the beginning with Ander and Eventine? Well, I suppose so. I don't know. You know, um, uh, the writers um, of the uh, of the show basically wrote it the way they wanted to. <laughs> um, and my job, uh, in conjunction with this, was not to correct them, uh, as I saw it at least, or to tell them, well, wait, it didn't happen that way in the book. It was to make sure that they stayed consistent and on track with what they were trying to do. And uh, for me, the relationship between the brothers uh, in the book was somewhat different uh, than it was uh, uh, in the TV show. So I just, I just let them go the way they wanted to go. And, and for me, it was... I'm always writing about brothers and sisters and their relationships, um, I don't know why. Uh, it interests me. Uh, relationships interest me in general, but sibling relationships particularly, I guess because I have a sister uh, I'm close to. She's a writer also. Um, and so, you know, that's part of it. Um, a lot of the, uh, when you see your family growing up, it's sort of you see the differences in the relationships between the people uh, that are in your family and uh, particularly the siblings. So. I, I like to explore that because there's uh, there's a lot of rubbing up against each other in family situations, and um, it go, it's, it's for me it's also very Faulknerian. Uh, I, I go back to what William Faulkner did with families and how they reacted with each other, and and how sometimes they were close and sometimes they were extremely distant, um, and how they sometimes had impact and sometimes didn't. Um, and I think again that's a reflection of the way the world works. So I write about it. That. Uh that relationship was certainly tied up neatly in the series. I remember uh, in the TV series, in the books, it's more tragic mm-hmm. and far more complex, right? Well, and I think that in a 10-episode season, you can only do so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that was the... I think that the focus in the, in the, in the TV series was clearly on... Uh, they, they wanted the focus to be on Will and the two women. You know that was that was it, yeah. and, and they in the book, uh, you know, Will Will has no real uh, romantic 
uh, yeah. inclinations regarding Amberley. Right. Uh, he doesn't. He, uh, you know, what he really has is a complicated uh, situation about whether whether he's, he wants to do this and then is he up to doing this and uh, how difficult is she making it for him and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Eritrea in the book is, is she's you know she just throws herself at will because she sees a way out of her life. Yeah. Uh, and also she likes him and yeah. she thinks he's pretty pretty unusual and interesting. Uh, so some of that carried over and some of it didn't, and that's kind of that's kind of okay for me. I don't mind that. Um, they they had a different. I, I understand for their audience, they thought the love triangle would be stronger and more interesting. Yeah, I, I expect to see more of that in season two. Uh, so, um, you know, that's that's just that's just what it is. That's why I keep saying it's a companion piece. Yeah. That wasn't what I was writing about because. Um, I didn't really write much about romantic relationships in those first three books. Um, later, more heavily so. Uh, but that's all those years of not being able to get a date, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, can you talk a little bit about the process for uh, the, the collaboration, to whatever extent uh, it happened? Yeah. It was a good. Re- we had a really. Good, I had a good relationship with the writers. I met them early on, uh, and they have they have an extensive background. They did Smallville. They did one of the Spider-Man movies. They've done a lot of other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like them. Uh, they are very down to earth guys. Um, and uh, I think that I knew right from the beginning that it was going to be a good working relationship. Uh, they were stuck with me because it was contractual. Uh, but I didn't want to go into it with the idea that it was adversarial. Uh, and so I told them early on, uh, they, say, you know, they said what every writer always says and what they've always said to me in every project I've worked on over the years, which is, we love your work. <laughs> it's great. This book doesn't need to be changed. It's filmable just as it is. And I say, okay, that's enough puffery right there. <laughs> you know, I know you're going to change it. I know you're going to change it, and it's okay with me if you leave the bones of the story intact. Uh-huh. You know, that's fine. I, I want you to be creative. I want you to bring in new characters. I want you to, you know, and I learned this lesson from George Lucas when I wrote The, the uh, Phantom Menace. He mm-hmm. told me the same thing. He says, yeah, write some new characters. Get rid of my stuff if you don't like it. I don't care. <laughs> And I thought, well, how enlightened. Uh, so I, I feel like that's kind of what's necessary because they're artists too, and you don't want to say you have to just do what I did and you can't change any of this because I think that takes some of the starch out of them when you do that, and yeah. I didn't want that. So their job was to write the scripts, not my job. I didn't want to rewrite the dang things. I did them once. <laughs> Um, and then uh, I would vet them and tell them if there were, you know, problems in continuity or in history or in uh, description that I thought were uh, needed to be addressed in some way. Um, and mostly I just let them go. And I thought it was good because I, I thought it was good I didn't have to do that sort of thing. Like in that beginning when they have that race. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was great. Mm-hmm. What a great idea. You know, I knew they weren't going to open with the, you know, the chosen marching down to greet the tree. Yeah. I mean, boring. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they got to do, they got to move, it moves differently, and they have to reposition things. You know they're going to bring all the major characters in in the first episode, because that's one of the rules. You bring all of the major characters in right away. So, you know, for me, it was just, uh, it was just going along for the ride and helping out when I could. At one point uh, during the course of our discussions about 
uh, pressures that were being placed upon them to have a little more interaction, shall we say, hmm. between the characters, mm-hmm. uh, the male and the female characters. Mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, and they wrote some scenes in which uh, they sort of got together and threw off all their clothes and fell into bed. Okay. <laughs> and I said, uh, did I miss something in my book about this? You know? and they said, I said, I don't think this is, you know, then I wrote them a, a, a short uh, couple-page uh uh, treatise called Fifty Shades of Shannara, <laughs> and uh, in which I discussed with them uh, my belief that it was that uh, sex is all about the tease. Mm-hmm. You know, because otherwise, if it's about the act, then once you've done the act, you've done the act; it's over with. Yeah. And who cares? Yeah. But in all good stories, it's the question of when or if it will happen. Mm-hmm. The tease is all about what makes it work, mm-hmm. and they were pretty good about sticking to that. At least they were with uh, Amberling. Yeah. weren't so good about Eritrea, but she's a different character. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the question we always end with is, um, do you have advice for young writers, beginners? Mm. Quit now. Why you Well, you know, uh, I think that uh, if you don't, I, I always tell everybody that if you don't love writing more than you love anything else, and I mean anything else, you probably are in the wrong game. Mm. This is such a commitment, and it's and writing is such a harsh mistress in many ways. Um, I know that uh, my wife can would be happy to sit down and discuss with you what I'm like if I'm not writing, <laughs> and it is not a pretty picture. Yeah. Uh, so I think that you have to really love what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're doing it for yourself or to be published or whatever. You have to be content with the fact that you're writing something and it makes you feel good. Um, and then beyond that, I think it's, it has to do with perseverance. It has to do with reading and learning and paying attention to the craft, understanding it is a craft. Um, all those things come into, into play. Um, and, you know, if, if you've got, you got that much going for you, that's about as much as you can, can hope for. Then you just hope that somewhere along the way you get lucky. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for talking with us. It was great. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it.